Consider this proposition. Not all voices have to sound the same. And that goes for podcasts, too. Today, I want to say once and for all that our sound is intentional and that we are proud of it. Hiss, distortion, and all. We think that what some hear as imperfection are all part of what sets us apart from the ever-growing pack of podcasters. Professor Jennifer Stover discusses the cultural politics of sound and listening on this edition of Radio Survivor. I'm Paul Reismandel, here with co-host and co-producer Eric Klein. Radio Survivor is the sound of strong communities. Joining us via Skype from Binghamton University is Jennifer Stover. She is the co-founder and editor-in-chief of the Sounding Out blog, which started in 2009. She is an associate professor of English at Binghamton University, and her book, The Sonic Color Line, Race and the Cultural Politics of Listening, was published by the New York University Press in 2016. Thank you for joining us, Jennifer. Oh, you're very welcome. I'm really happy to be here. And we also have Jennifer Waits, a member of the Radio Survivor staff, joining us from San Francisco. And she she arranged this interview because uh, Jennifer Waits serves with Jennifer Stover on the Radio Preservation Task Force, uh, which is a project of the Library of Congress. And Jennifer Waits has told us about uh, the task force several times here on the Radio Survivor uh, podcast, and she's written about it at radiosurvivor.com. And and Jennifer, I'm going to hand the reins to you, Jennifer Waits. Yes, thank you, Paul. Um, I'm I'm super excited to be talking to Jennifer Stover. Um, and in fact, I think we may have met for the first time at the What Is Radio conference in Portland um, many many years ago. Is that is that correct? Is that your recollection? I believe so. Was that in spring of 2014, I think? Uh, or even longer ago. Um, but, I remember and, that conference was so much fun because each of us had our little radio intros. That was one of my highlights. I still have it on my computer. They made little jingles out of our names. Oh, that's so awesome. Um, <laughs> I So I'm, I've been following the Sounding Out blog for quite a long time and, and and I think it's just a really interesting way to make some academic writing about sound studies, um, you know, accessible um, and and draw attention to this really interesting field um, of academics that I think, you know, maybe a lot of our listeners aren't aware of sound studies. So I'd, I'd love it if you could maybe tell us a little bit about Sounding Out and how it got started. Oh, absolutely. Sounding Out started as a way for sound study scholars to find each other. Um, It was a very, back in 2009, it was coming along, but still a really new field. And a lot of us were kind of isolated and the only person on our campus or the only person in our department doing this kind of research. And it gets very lonely doing that. And so I figured that this might be an excellent way to create a community online. Sound Studies hadn't yet had any conferences, hadn't yet, we didn't have any places to publish our work. And so I worked with two really excellent uh, then graduate students, now both um, are PhDs, Aaron Trammell, who is now in the computer science departments doing humanities work at UC Irvine. 
he on the tenure track. He's our podcast, our podcast guru. And then Liana Silva, who is teaching in the Houston Public School District, an English an English teacher there. And so they were graduate students of mine, and we were just really geeking out on on sound. And we really thought that you know it was time to have have this kind of beacon to create community, and also to um, make sure that work by underrepresented professors gets gets published out there. And also folks that aren't in academia, we regularly publish pieces from DJs, from sound artists, from archivists, um, from video game sound designers. And we really just wanted to have something where everyone who's interested in the cultural meaning of sound can find a place to talk, can find something new and interesting every week. And also, like we said, to make it accessible so that the field can show its relevance beyond beyond just our, you know, kind of cloistered academic conversations. All, all three of us are first-generation scholars and first-generation PhDs, so we kind of designed it as a blog that our, our family could read and, and know what we were studying and spending all that time holed up doing. And we've tried to stay true to that that ethos in the last nine years, even as we've grown and, and taken on many different roles in sound studies. How would you explain sound studies to your family or to people who might not have heard that term before? Sound studies, I think, is a real misnomer. I often refer to it as listening studies. That's really the course I teach at, at the university is called How We Listen. And I think that that's, that's really at the heart of what sound studies does is really thinks about the historical ways that we listen. It thinks about the cultural ways that we, you know, we learn to think of some sounds as noises and some sounds as music. It talks about the political history of sound and the power behind sound, who has the power to make loud noises without being stopped. Who um, who is, you know, the image of silence and and how silence can come to mean both, you know, an, an imposition of power of being silenced, but now we're seeing a wave of silence as a form of resistance. So we're really thinking about where the physiological meets the the cultural and and trying to to really give a more complex way of understanding listening besides just, you know, the study of the hardware, the study of um the physiological study of how of you know how our, our ears and skin and, and bones work to help us listen. But, so we're kind of at that at that intersection there. So is it true that that sound studies um, is somewhat of a reaction to media studies emphasizing the visual over the years, um, you know, like film studies, um, and, and and that we talk about culture in more of a visual way than we have, and, and we tend to neglect sort of um, interpretations based on sound. Am I getting that, am I getting that right, that that's part of what um, led to the creation of this field? Yes, I think that that was actually a, a realization across several fields. And that's one of the things that I think Sounding Out does really well is, you know, it traces kind of the roots of the field. And film scholars were one of the first to start thinking, you know, in the recent years to start thinking about how sound works, that, that the visual had really dominated film and continues to dominate film analysis. And so, you know, you had sound people like Walter Murch talking about his process. You had 
scholars thinking about, you know, the various uses of, of female screens. And, and then within history, you know, within history, we realize that archives have often, you know, saved material objects that, um, or recordings, and recordings are very important, but sound studies also evolved as a way to think about other ways that, that we can think about sound in the archive. And, you know, what do images actually tell us about the sounds of the moment? What do, um, you know, various objects tell us about sound? So it also grew out of a need to think about sound beyond solely digital or even analog recording. Like, how do we, how do we understand the way sound works in our everyday life beyond media and kind of actually setting media and music in a larger frame? That's how I like to think of it, is that it's not necessarily a reaction to the, the dominance of the visual, but actually a, a reframing of how of how sound works. That we had a very specialized language for how to talk about music, but not one that that actually put music in the larger soundscape that we, you know, that we hear it in when we're walking down the street or when we're at a concert or that, that music is only, you know, one way in which we engage with sound, but our, our understanding of it had, had just been so kind of cut off and limited. So sound studies is the, the entity that grew out of all of these different fields kind of, you know, awakening to, to sound, literary studies, you know, we haven't talked about all the sonic images in literature. My book does a lot of that. And so, so sounding out is a way to bring all of us that are kind of housed in these various academic fields into conversation and learn to learn from each other. And what was that spark for you that got you interested in studying sound? Well, I've always been a a lifelong music listener and and total music geek. That's that's where a lot of us a lot of us come from. But I didn't grow up in a home that was traditionally musical. I don't play an instrument um, or anything like that. But my my dad had a collection of about a thousand records that were my just favorite things growing up. And he taught me how to how to use them and handle them and clean them and play them. And I got my own turntable when I was five and started started collecting records. My first record was the Go-Go's Beauty and the Beat um, in 1981, I think. I was, nice. yeah. And <laughs> so, so my dad just taking his listening so seriously that as he didn't just consume music, he didn't just... Um, kind of casually listen, but he really taught me to to respect that kind of, you know, personal listening that we all do. And I, and, you know, he even kept track of how many times he played certain records and when he played certain records. I have a whole archive that he left of his own personal listening practice. And that just got me to think that, you know, so many of us have this really profound musical knowledge that comes from listening, but we don't have a way to talk about it or unlock it. You know, we only have this specialized language of musicology that often depends on being able to read music and to think about music as a, as a musician would when so many of us, you know, listening is, is an art form that we, that we possess. How do we talk about listening? And I just realized how difficult it actually was before I went to grad school, I used to do band bios and I would, a band would send me their music. And this is, you know, back, back when other people did this for bands and they didn't have to do this for themselves. I would write 
a description of their music and their sound that they could then send out to record companies. And, and, uh, I used to get paid $25 a piece for these things. And so I got really good actually at describing sound and trying to describe it in a way that the band would feel it represented them. And so when I went into grad school, looking at, at music and music criticism, I was actually surprised at how at the time, you know, how, how little attention was being paid to a band's sound. We talked about their, how they dressed. We talked about actually how the records were pressed and made. We talked about the significance of their lyrics, but not really anything that took popular music as, as a specialized form that, you know, that it's not just about the lyrics, it's about how the sound meets the lyrics. So I was taking a course on hip hop with Viet Nguyen at USC. And he basically said, Hey, if this is your complaint, this is your assignment, then you go write. He, he asked me to write a discography of hip hop in LA that takes sound into account. So that was my assignment for the end of the semester. And I started working really diligently on that. And at the same time as I was doing that, I'm from Southern California, so really thinking about how these LA artists use sound to represent the city and what is their engagement with sound and how they use sound to express being an, an Angelino. And so I was really deep into thinking about the city and I was reading Richard Wright's Native Son at the same time for an African-American novel class. And it was the simultaneity of doing those two projects together that just opens up this whole world of sound within that novel. And it was like I got tuned into a conversation in African-American literature that has been going on regarding sound, regarding you know the sonic understanding of the world and, and how we think and how we listen and how that area of our lives has been racialized in ways that are very apparent but we don't talk about them. And that's how the idea for the Sonic Color Line came along. Jennifer Stover, you are the editor-in-chief of the Sounding Out block. You're also an associate professor at uh, Binghamton University in English. Can you explore that a little bit more for us to help us kind of unpack how, I think for a lot of folks, it, it's, it's, a, it's a novel idea that, that, that listening and sound would be bound up in race. Yes, we, there's something about sound that we feel as if is kind of is, is true and is transparent and it just happens. And, and I'm not sure exactly why that is, except, you know, there's been some theories that, um, you know, our eyes, we feel as if we have more agency over our eyes because we have eyelids that we can, we can shut and we can turn our head. And, but listening just seems in many ways to just happen to us um, because, you know, we're always listening. Even when we're asleep, we're always, the body's always tracking vibrations. But what I found in, in my research is that our listening can be very much, very much shaped um, culturally, shaped by, you know, the, our history, shaped by our education, shaped by the region in which we grow up, that so many things actually operate in a way um, psychologically like those eyelids and, and they come to seem as, as habits. And, you know, they come to seem as, as true and natural and they come to seem to us like the way everybody listens, right? We tend to kind of universalize our own individual listening experiences. And really, I think that's why the idea that race operates through sound and listening seems so strange. It's because listening feels like 
It's something we don't have control over, but we actually do exert quite a bit of filtering over over what we listen to and how we listen. And in fact, a lot of people argue that until our brain makes meaning of sound, we're in some ways just picking it up. We're picking up the vibrations. It's that moment when, and it sometimes happens very quickly, when we decide whether a sound is a noise, when we decide whether we're going to listen to a voice or not, when people decide that they hear a quote unquote foreign accent when someone speaks English, that it means something about them. And that's what my work does is tries to slow that process down, show how anyone who's grown up in the United States has come to have certain beliefs about what a quote unquote American citizen should sound like. And, and that often has been very much entangled with a white masculine identity and sound. And also that there are ways of kind of white masculine ways of listening to the world that we are all encouraged to, to adopt in order to um, have a place in this, in this country. If we all can't, this is kind of coming out of the Cold War. If we all can't, we can't look alike, then, then maybe we can listen alike. Maybe we can have a similar sensory orientation to the world that would make us American. So my book really looks at how African-American writers have noticed this, have called it out, and have resisted it through various kinds of strategies, some of it having to do with with uh, proliferating different vocal sounds, some of it doing with music, some of it challenging the idea that black spaces are naturally, quote unquote, noisy. Um, that's what I call the sonic color line is that kind of stereotyping that happens through sound. And it happens, you know, in these very subtle ways in our everyday lives. And often because we have such a practice language to talk about visual stereotyping, that it evades us. You know, there's ways that sonic stereotyping can be used to racially profile in ways that we don't have legal recourse against. Um, loud music in particular um, is one that seems to very much invite stereotyping and invite um, a punishment and, and, and bring about real inequities in how people are treated. That calls to mind things like um, stores that would blast classical music to try to get rid of loiterers, you know, is that another sort of way that that sound can be used against people? Oh, absolutely. I was I've, I've witnessed this myself in downtown Los Angeles. I was on my way home from seeing Isaac Hayes at the Hollywood Bowl. And I valiantly tried to take public transportation there. And I got left in downtown LA at two in the morning at a bus stop waiting to catch my next bus. And while I was there, there was nobody on the street. It was it was before, you know, it was the first wave of, of gentrification in downtown Los Angeles. And I heard this classical music being blasted at at, at very, very loud, very, very loud uh, decibel level. And I didn't know, you know, where it was coming from. I was totally shocked. It was in one of the new um, new lofts that were made out of some of the old factory spaces down there. And when I got home that night, I did some research online and found that it was becoming a common practice in California to divert homeless people from sleeping in the doorways of these new, really kind of locked fortresses of lofts that were being built in areas that formerly homeless people um, had, had lived in in downtown Los Angeles. And, you know, there's two things going on there. One, um, the, uh, the idea that classical music can't be noise. Because it is, you know, 
even by the title, classical music, that it's always a sound of excellence and peacefulness. And, and you know, it's got a longstanding association with whiteness um, coming from Europe and, and uh, particularly the way in which America valorized a lot of the German composers. And so that, you know, is going on there. And then second, um, right, this way that power is being applied through sound and kind of drawing these borders through sound. On the Sounding Out blog, you added a podcast, which also explores some of these topics. And um, I mean, it makes sense that you would want to have, um, you know, a sonic exploration of what's being written about on the website. So can you talk a bit? It, it's an interesting format for the podcast because it's not necessarily the same type of podcast from week to week. So if you could give us a little bit of the story behind uh, the Sounding Out <laughs> podcast. Oh, absolutely. I mean, one of the cool things about when we started the blog was not just that we finally had a venue that we could publish sound study scholarship in, but also that we could really exploit all of the amazing multimedia things about the internet. In fact, maybe one of the reasons why it's been so difficult and, you know, to write about sound is that we haven't had, you know, you can reproduce visual images in a in 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 print, but you can't really reproduce the kinds of sounds that we were exploring. So we really were excited about that. And a couple years in, you know, we've been really experimenting with, you know, including recordings on the on the blog and, and trying different things out. And we just, it was about 2011, we all met and, and just Aaron, Liana and I, the editorial collective, and we just thought that, you know, this is my, po I mean, podcasting was, was fairly, fairly new in 2011. And we just thought it looked like an excellent venue for people to do long, longer form pieces. And instead of just including snippets on the blog, and that maybe it'd be a way for some of our sound artists to do online installations. Maybe it's a way for folks to share their field recordings um, that they used in their book. Maybe it's a way for, um, we make a mixtape every year to, that's a, a collective piece put together by everyone who's written for us for the year. And, and it's maybe it's a way to interview folks and hear voices. And so we just put our energies behind making a podcast and seeing what might happen. And yeah, we're kind of like, uh, now that Black Mirror is out, it's easier to explain. We're like Black Mirror. It's different every week. <laughs> we're on, it's they're different. We actually are bi-monthly now. Um, it's different every, every time we publish. And we also were really invested in helping people learn how to podcast. We actually, and this is uh, Aaron Trammell's domain on the blog, he developmentally edits podcasts and he helps people that are brand new at making podcasts because we wanted to also exploit the, the genre and what it opened up to get sounds from people in places that may not have access to a studio, that may not have access to high-end recording equipment, that may not yet, you know, have, have trained in how to, how to narratively put together a podcast. So we've been, you know, behind the scenes, we do a lot of, of that kind of work. Which is why our podcasts often, you know, sound really different because they're coming from often all over the world. One of the reasons that I was really interested in having you on the podcast was at the Radio Preservation Task Force conference. Um, you were on a panel and you talked about how some people actually complain that sometimes your podcast doesn't sound that great, um, that the audio quality 
might not be what some people expect. Um, but that, you know, access and getting things out to people was more important and that, um, you ended up sort of writing a manifesto explaining why people just have to deal with the sound quality. So I don't know if you <laughs> can just sort of describe the manifesto. I thought it had a great sort of punk rock ethos. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yes, all three of the the editors, um, we all come from a DIY, do-it-yourself punk rock background, which is kind of how the in a way, why we started, you know, had the audacity to start the kind of blog we did because we came from this this background of like, well, it doesn't exist. You got to try to figure out how to make it, and you got to figure out how to make it on on nothing. I mean, that's the other thing I should mention is that sounding out is is completely unfunded. It's all done by volunteer labor. It's all done by a sharing of expertise that you know obviously contributes a bit to our to our sound. But but really, no. I mean, we wanted this politically to have this this ethos of openness and and access and we did receive we've received little bits and pieces of feedback but we one you know got a whopping comment back in 2016 that was just kind of going in on our sound and in fact was saying you know I love the content of your podcast I like being transported to all of these different places and I like not you know not knowing what to expect it's kind of like a free format radio station but I just can't, I'm an audiophile and I can't deal with the sound. And, you know, it kind of went in on the critique and, and we all got together in this meeting and we're just like, ah, you know, how do we respond to this? You know, do we respond to this? And it was Aaron's, Aaron's idea on our 50th podcast to come out with a manifesto of why we sound like, and we figured, you know, if that, you know, it's kind of a trick with sound. If you, if you maybe know why, something sounds the way it does, it may actually, you know, make you a more forgiving, a more forgiving listener. Um, we're, you know, knowing we aren't intentionally trying to trying to annoy audiophiles with, you know, occasionally inconsistent sound quality or so Aaron wrote a piece, um, it's called the manifesto or sounding out 51st podcast. And I can I can actually read a little bit of it. Yeah. Um, Jennifer Stover, a uh, co founder and editor in chief of the sounding out blog and the podcast. Uh, do read from Aaron's uh, manifesto <laughs> and maybe perhaps it will answer my question as well. Um, what specifically, like you, you just, you just gave the suggestion that there's a reason why it doesn't sound great, but it's still extremely important to listen to. So I want to know, like, was there a piece of uh, sound art or, or a piece of radio that you guys put on your podcast uh, that needed to be heard? Like, what was this piece? Oh, excellent. Okay, well, here's what here's what Aaron says. He said, I, I want to clear the air a little about what it is that we do. I've received feedback here and there over the years about how the sound of our podcast sounds different or, or inconsistent, that we need to normalize the sound a bit. Hello out there, audiophiles. Today, I want to say once and for all that our sound is intentional and that we are proud of it. His distortion and all. We think that what some hear as as imperfections, he's got quotes around that, are all part of what sets us apart from the ever-growing pack of podcasters. Sounding Out's podcast has sounded different since we MacGyvered our first episode from an epic talk, a few great ideas, and a rogue tape recorder at River Reed Books in Binghamton, New York in April 2011. And that was actually a convert, now end quote, and that was actually a conversation that I hosted with 
a, a lawyer named Peter DeCola who came through Binghamton to talk about his new book on sampling. And the, uh, it was co-written with Kembrew McLeod. It's a, it's a great book about sampling and hip hop and kind of where the, how, how the crackdown on sampling legally has changed music. And, mm -hmm. and, and so we had a great conversation about it. And, you know, we, someone emailed me and said that they had recorded it. We didn't know. It was all accidental. And so we had this great audio of this, this really excellent conversation in the community. And the person happened to be sitting in the middle of the room and captured it fairly well. And so that's, that's, what, that's what kicked it off. It was um, a bootleg, though. <laughs> it was. It was totally a bootleg. I know. Yeah, we, we had no, no ideas, no releases. It was like, it was like a dead concert. And, and I, my question is, on that particular tape, I mean, you said it was someone just sitting in the middle of the, of the, um, uh, of the audience. I mean, was it, was it substandard? I'm, I'm could do air quotes if people could see me. Was it, was it audio that, that maybe, you know, that you wouldn't release if you were, if it was a slate gab fest? Perhaps. Um, but I think it, it was a good enough job that, you know, that it, it definitely doesn't sound like it's a studio though. It sounds like people shuffling and coughing and, and there's definitely a liveness to it. Yeah. And you hear the space also. And I think that's one of the things that maybe some folks find disorienting, but we find really interesting is that every recording also records a place and a space. And I think that's one thing that, uh, you know, that's one thing you lose when you have a, a podcast that's solely recorded in a, in a recording studio. Um, Tony Schwartz, one of my idols, my recording idols, um, said in the 40s and 50s that that recording studios were for silence they're for recording silence not for recording sound and so that's one of the things i think that we find that exciting and interesting some folks whose ears are getting i think increasingly trained to podcasts like radio lab have different expectations i think when we started there were no expectations for how podcasts were going to sound so i think that that's that's one thing that's that's really changed since 2011 but but as here's what Aaron said about it. As I listen back to the past five years, I realize that our contribution to the fields of sound studies and podcasting has not just been in terms of who we broadcast and what we amplify, but the sounds of our podcasts themselves. Our podcasts don't sound perfect. They're spiritually aligned by the raw production ethic of bands like the Minutemen, who always privilege the emotive qualities of immediacy, access, and intimacy over the brooding qualities of studio production. Particularly because we founded the podcast upon these same principles, I've strived to prioritize radical visions and ideas to amplify new voices above all else. I want each podcast to arrive in your queue like a wrapped gift. Topic, content, production, and sound, all equally mysterious. Some of our podcasts were recorded on cell phones and others were recorded in high-end studios and recording booths. And we're, we're proud of these audible distortions. I think there's like even a parallel there, uh, Jennifer Stover, with you know, the visual, because I mean, that's something you sort of uh, started us off with is, is talking about how there's been a lot of exploration of, of visual culture in that, in, in this era now, uh, you know, whether you're an Instagram user or you're somebody who's, who's shooting high end digital film, a lot of work is put in to make that look like film from the analog era, or sometimes even to make yes. it look like crappy VHS video, even though it might've been recorded in a, in a high end studio with, with multi hundred thousand dollar cameras. And, and there, I, I see this parallel with, with, with podcasting on the one hand, I wonder if it's, if you could comment on this, is it, is it sort of a development of, of a medium and a way to listen that we're seeing here 
uh, where on, on the one hand, I think you see with, with film, people get very focused on it needs to look a particular way. It needs to have a particular aesthetic. It has to have a particular sort of polish to it and then growing it, you know, that we can, we can have jump cuts. Uh, we can have shaky, you know, first person footage. You can have something like the Blair, Witch pro, you know, project, uh, is that something which, which you're trying to sort of push the boundary then with sound to say, though, there is not as, not a single aesthetic here. Yes. And I think, I mean, I, I, I would definitely call that the NPR effect over, uh-huh. over podcasting, um, the, the certain kind of modulation of voice, the certain kinds of pacing. Um, this American Life is probably the, the biggest influence, I think, over how podcasts have, have changed in mm-hmm. terms of their sound. And, you know, that's really what was exciting about podcasting was that it was coming from you know, when it first started, it was coming from everywhere. Um, whether it was el- elusive or not, there was a sense of democratization and excitement with with podcasting that, you know, we all can't be on the radio, but we can all find a way through our cell phones and our computers to, to broadcast something. And I think there definitely has been uh, an impact on the sound since NPR became, you know, the biggest kind of podcaster in the game. And I think people, but also, you know, people are, our, our technologies on our phone and our computers are getting better and more people have access to, to that. And I have started to kind of listen to listen differently um, based on the kind of work that they can do. But, you know, I also think that what is, is interesting about our podcast and, and the hearing of different voices, the hearing of voices that aren't all the same pitch or aren't, you know, traditional radio voices. I mean, I definitely think that, you know, we want to open up people's ears. We want to challenge the, the standards. And also we understand that editing is a language and we allow our podcasters to edit that who have that skill to edit themselves and to, you know, give us a finished piece of work. And I think there's something that's important for artists to have that kind of autonomy over what they do. And so you won't get a consistent editorial vision because quite literally we, you know, allow folks to, to, to edit and to use editing as a form of communication. This is Radio Survivor, the sound of strong communities. I'm Paul Reesmandel, and I'm joined by co-hosts Eric Klein and Jennifer Waits. And we're talking with Professor Jennifer Stover from the University of Binghamton. She's the editor-in-chief of Sounding Out, and we're discussing the cultural politics of sound and listening. Radio Survivor is heard on non-commercial radio stations across the United States, And we want to welcome KPPQ, Caps Radio, in Ventura, California, to the Radio Survivor affiliate family. And you can find all of our affiliate stations at our website, radiosurvivor.com, where you can also learn how to get the show on your favorite community or college station. Radio Survivor is also available as a podcast We're on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and just about anywhere you can listen to a podcast. Please subscribe there, wherever you listen, so that you never miss an episode. If you have any comments about today's show, we'd love to hear from you. Please drop us a line 
podcast at radiosurvivor.com or we're on Twitter, we're on Facebook, we're easy to find. Just look for Radio Survivor. And now let's return to our conversation with Jennifer Stover of Sounding Out. One of the types of podcasts you run is also um, Soundwalks. And, and I know yes. that you do, I know you do work with Soundwalks outside of Sounding Out. Can you just explain what a Soundwalk is? It's used as a method of research, and it's used also as a method of locating yourself in time and space. It comes from Hildegard Westerkamp and her work at Simon Fraser University in the 70s for um, really getting a sense of your place, like I said, your place in, in a particular area and actually becoming aware of the meanings that you make through sound. It's a way to get in touch with, with how you listen. And a lot of the folks, such as Murray Schaefer um, and Barry Truax coming out of, of Simon Fraser in that moment, were really, you know, arguing that, that we've, you know, we've lost our touch there in a field, you know, we've lost our touch for sound. We've stopped listening. We've tuned things out to the point where, um, you know, we're ignoring things that are vitally important and that vital importance and that we've diminished our lives because we no longer listen to the world around us. So their walks were in, in tune with acoustic ecology and the larger movements, ecological movements in the 70s. And the notion of the sound walk has endured and sound studies has really embraced it as, as a research method that, that we can use these logs of listening to track many things. Bernie Krauss uses sound walks to track and recording to track, uh, you know, global global climate change and the shifts in the sounds of, of animals in particular spaces over time. I know folks that use it to, to understand gentrification and the changes that gentrification um, has wrought in um in the in various cities we have, you can also use it for fun um, people uh, record and send us sound walks of you know a new place that they've never been to um, we've had some um, from iceland trips to iceland we've had sound walks that are about nightlife in japan we've had sound walks of kansas city and and how liana silva our editor used sound walks to become a part of a new place that she had just moved to and I'm currently working on a project called the Binghamton Historical Soundwalk Project that takes place in downtown Binghamton. We're debuting it in May. And it's a project where students have amassed oral histories and amass archival sounds and have amassed ambient recordings over the past five years. And we're currently in the process of turning those into art installations. We're building five sound art installations throughout downtown Binghamton. And we're going to lead walks where students and residents of the town can um, experience the sounds of Binghamton together, both the live sounds going on on First Friday and experiencing these um, these provocations, um, you know, these art pieces that challenge the, the history that we're given. And so there's a lot of ways, you know, that's really a piece where art meets activism, meets um, the academy and meets archival work. So the sound sound walks are being used for a variety of purposes. And I think they make really they make really interesting listen listening um, for a podcast. You really get a sense and a flavor of uh, of, of another space and someone's opinion and feeling about that space through a, a sound walk podcast. And Jennifer Stover, uh, you, you said as the, the history work, 
uh, is Binghamton. That's Binghamton, New York, correct? Yes, Binghamton, New York. Making sure people know. And you are a associate professor of English there at Binghamton University, located in Binghamton, New York, uh, conveniently enough. We're talking about sound studies and the Sounding Out blog, where you are an editor-in-chief. And we're also talking about the podcast project of the Sounding Out blog. This is Radio Survivor, the Sound is Strong communities. I'm Paul Reesmandel. With me here is Eric Klein. And joining us from San Francisco, California, is Jennifer Waits. Yes, we are all here. And and Jennifer Stover, it it's I think it's just so interesting um to share all of this because I'm not sure how many of our listeners have really thought about like the broader idea of sound studies. Um and thinking about sound walks, I as I make my way around my own city, I notice more and more people plugged into personal electronic devices and 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 it makes me sad that they're not hearing the sounds of the world around them. And so are there particular kind of concerns within sound studies or hot topics in 2018? And, and maybe that's one of them is um, how, how do we interact with sound today? Yes, that's a really, that's a really interesting question. A lot of, um, I talk with my students often about their relationship to headphones and their relationship to um, the world around them and whether or not they think that they are, they are losing out on something and why they use headphones. And I often ask them to go 24 hours without them and write about their experiences. And it's really, it's really interesting um, that, you know, there's a sense of, of agency, I think, that, that headphones and c- the feeling of being able to control the soundscape around you brings them. And at first, you know, a lot of them experience of some real discomfort with being stripped of that. Um, some of them really come to like and realize that they've been missing out on and that listening is actually a very social sense that you are, you know, quite literally feeling the vibrations of people's voices around you. And, you know, that bus that almost hit you because you were on your, uh, you know, with your headphones in the, in the crosswalk. And they're really, you know, the sound walks actually have come to help them um, understand and desire more of that, you know, relationship between the world around them. I also found something really interesting, and this led to um, our one of our podcasts, the, the episode sixty three, the Sonic Landscapes of Unwelcome Women of Color, Sonic Harassment, and Public Space by the um, by Locator Radio, uh, a podcast out of L.A. hosted by Mala Munoz and Dios FM. Uh, my students in class, w- uh, many women of color who come from New York City, we're, we're upstate, we're about three hours from the city, so we get quite a few students from, from New York City. And they were talking about how important headphones were to prevent sexual harassment, that they are so catcalled constantly and have so much coming at them that that headphones and loud music become a way to to drown that out and a way to kind of take back public space. And that was really, you know, we malign headphones so much, um, but we don't stop to think, you know, the ways that they often can serve a a protective function. And so that's that podcast is all about uh, how how catcalling creates, you know, sonic landscapes of unwelcome is what they call it and how women are really being kind of 
cheated out of the the freedom of just walking down the street and what that means. I started listening to that podcast and I was really struck by the idea of abusive noise and and I hadn't really I hadn't really thought about street harassment from kind of a sound perspective. Um and yeah, it's very compelling. Jennifer Stover, one of the things you were talking about today on Radio Survivor um, reminded me of something that I was taught to be proud of with the radio program that I used to help make um, about, oh gosh, 15 years ago. Uh, Free Speech Radio News was a broadcast that included voices, reporters uh, filing their stories from all around the world. And it really was, at the time I was so young, I didn't quite understand how unique it was. And now I miss it so very much. We had people speaking, I mean, everyone was speaking English, uh, all the reporters, that is, were speaking English in their own uh, accents, Uh, reporters from Senegal, reporters from Nigeria, reporters from Indonesia, uh, everywhere, reporters from everywhere speaking English in their accents, as well as what was so unique uh, then and still now, these reporters were were, were recording their sounds in their countries. And um, you never hear that on, well, never is too strong of a word. It is right. it is really rare for an NPR story on All Things Considered or a BBC story, BBC story on the news to actually uh, have a recording of the voice of a person speaking uh, in a foreign language. Super rare. And Free Speech Radio News used to do that all the time. Uh, every, every story would have uh, someone speaking Spanish, uh, and then you'd have an um, English translation overlaid over the top. Uh, I don't know if that's a question so much as a statement that I was excited to make. Well, that's really, that's really cool. And I think that, that one of the things I talk about in lectures and with students about the sonic color line and the way it works in terms of accent and the way that accents get racialized and maligned is, you know, really how, think about how much work that that show did toward acculturating, uh, you know, a a lot of very monocultural American ears that Mm -hmm. are taught that a certain kind of pronunciation is the standard, um, is the only way to to do it, and that everyone is supposed to be working toward achieving that sound. And really, you know, I tell my students, like, you need to, you need to acclimate your ears to the accent. And when you, when you find yourself getting frustrated or, or angry at, at, you know, finding, finding someone's accent uh, impenetrable, then maybe you need to slow down and concentrate on, well, I'm, you know, today I'm going to practice my literacy in understanding English that's inflected with X accent, yeah. that it, it's about a kind of listening literacy um, and, in, and an intolerance and an unwillingness to to shift listening practices and to build that kind of literacy rather than you know to demand to quote unquote speak american like so many of these um youtube clips that students are are filming of their teachers like just recently happened in new jersey and it's the problem that we have this one idea this one notion of what an american sounds like that creates this kind of this kind of um abuse and and uh xenophobia. So I think that that show would have gone a long way toward, you know, shaping and building that kind of listening literacy rather than translating it into that, you know, a quote unquote, acceptable, acceptable English. Standard Midwestern, you know, it, yes, and that, I mean, right it, tracks, it tracks a development in linguistics that when it, the, the field became politicized in the seventies into the eighties and on and mm-hmm. thinking about that there's English is, 
there is not yes. English, but yeah. there is there is yes. there is a particular English that is Indian or Jamaican or uh, you know, that is British or is Cornwallian, as the case may be, what, and not what? not a monolithic English like maybe I learned how to speak. And I I think it's funny. I grew up in New Jersey, and I sort of studiously avoided trying to get the New Jersey accent. And instead, I have a different accent. And so my, my view of a New right. Jersey person trying to tell somebody that they have a uh, that, that they should speak American to me is is sort of Jennifer funny. Stover. What was this YouTube uh, phenomenon that you just referenced about uh, speaking American? There was a teacher in in a New Jersey classroom that a student. Um, hang on, let me let me make sure I have this I have this correct. Um, but I have seen it several times. Actually, my students wrote about it in the class I just taught called Listening to Race in America. And they actually brought it into class and brought it to to my attention that it was, I believe it was a substitute teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, she was a high school teacher. It went viral. Um, it was all over the news. Um, it was in October of 2017. And she basically kicks two students out of class, um, telling them that they were being disrespectful for speaking Spanish. And when they, you know, were challenging that she told them that they needed to speak American. Mm. Expanding the listening. And and I'd like to ask you, uh, Jennifer Stover, a question here that, you know, and, and if you can give advice for someone who's hearing this and hasn't really examined their own listening habits. Cause it's something which I think we just not trained to do. It's not something that, that comes naturally and mm. maybe starting to think, wow, I guess I haven't really examined how I take in sound or take in voices. Um, is there any simple way that, that someone who's sort of lit up now can begin to th- reanalyze or rethink how they take in, let's say voices, since that's kind of, where we're sitting, um, you know, is there, is there a practice? Is there something that someone can do or, or to begin to kind of, uh, become more open to the range of sounds or range of voices, or at least examine the assumptions that, that, that they're probably making unconsciously. Absolutely. Um, you know, we tend to associate women's voices, um, with, uh, you know, a lack of, of seriousness or a lack of intelligence or assertiveness. That's one thing I've come across in my, my own career. I'm from Southern California and I had a professor in a mock job interview tell me I sounded like a Valley girl Mm. and that if I wanted to be a professor that I needed to, um, you know, to change the way that I spoke, otherwise no one would take me, take me seriously. And that's very worrisome considering, right, that academics, are supposed to be taking these kinds of things seriously and challenging and checking um, that kind of that kind of stereotyping. But actually, I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head is just slow down and, and listen to the sound of voices and just, you know, when right when you meet someone, you know, kind of think, what qualities do they have in their voice? You know, what, you know, what, what, what associations am I making with a deep voice? Why might I find this bothersome or pleasurable? What assumptions am I making about this? Um, I, I, I had my students do a provocation where they had to walk around and it wasn't quite eavesdropping, but they had to heighten their listening to other people's conversations and kind of see as they were walking and going about their day. And one of my students was talking about how much and how, how much he'd been encouraged to stereotype the, the Long Island accent and that how he had been and realized consistently that once a woman in particular 
opened her mouth and spoke with a Long Island accent that he made an automatic assumption about almost, you know, so many aspects of their lives. And he and actually wasn't really listening to the content of what they were saying. And I guess just having an awareness that the sound of a voice communicates to us and that we often make these automatic assumptions and how can you consciously consciously challenge the way that you're you're listening to those to those to everyone's voices um, and also recognizing that voices are shaped by our families and the people that we love and the regions that we're from and so when we're all you know some of us are told all the time that we need to change how we speak in order to have respect and to fit in you know think about the message that that sends about everyone we love and where we came from and that voices are are really you know people have a very intimate relationship with them um, and I think also it's important to do some thinking about our own voices and the way in which our own voices have been critiqued throughout our lives and oftentimes when we do that and we realize how often we are misunderstood and we are labeled and our voices are um, you know, mine is, I'm too, my voice is too low and, and too, you know, often like to either a masculine quality to it or a shy quality to it. And all of these kinds of things are put on it. When we recognize that that's being done to us, sometimes that can also encourage us to then slow that practice down and stop doing that to, to other people. And, and, you know, in, it, that if we ignore the way that we react to the sound of a voice, we often you know, don't realize that we're tuning someone out. And, and we place so much emphasis on words and the sound of a voice communicates so much. That's really some great context for how we can all think more respectfully about um, about listening. And, and I really appreciate that, that on Sounding Out, you're featuring a variety of voices. And I think that that goes a long way to helping people to really understand that um, that we should be listening, you know, to all types of voices. And, and I agree, I've been in situations where um, I feel like there are people who tune out certain voices automatically and are, yes. you know, and don't listen. And it happens to women um, in particular. It's great that in, in a classroom setting, you're, you're taking students through these exercises that are allowing people to really kind of dive into that. Because um, I don't think many of us have had that that experience of, of really going deep and, and exploring our own biases, you know, while we're listening. Thank you. Thank you very much. I really enjoy doing that, that kind of work immensely. And I really hope that it, it has a, a, an impact. So I always have to ask about college radio, Jennifer Stover. Um, yes. so I'm, I'm curious if you have a college radio background, um, and then, and then I also know that you have a college radio station on campus at Binghamton and that, um, that there's a show or there was a show that was working to highlight some of the work being done at Sounding Out. So if you could kind of explain like the overall college radio connection with Sounding Out, that would be great. Oh my gosh. I have been a longtime listener of college radio. I went to UC Riverside. So KUCR was um, a big part of my listening growing up. And I was actually always too shy to have a radio show. I was shy at one point. Um, I swear. And my students never believe me when I say that. But I think it's because in some ways I was such a sensitive music listener that the idea of really personally exposing my, my musical taste 
Um, it was also a time of, you know, when everyone was listening to pavement and, you know, there was, it was a different, different kind of college radio landscape in the early nineties. But I used to come with friends and, and hang out at KUCR while they did their radio shows. Rachel, my friends, Rachel and Mike had a funk show that was so much fun. I just love being there and, and watching them work and looking through the, the record archives and KCR. I got to do an interview at KCR last year when I was home visiting and doing a book talk in Riverside. And that was one of the definitely the highlights of, of 2017 for me talking with Elliot Kim over there. And yes, we I love WHRW at Binghamton. Actually, uh, WHRW and KCR have both been uh, on the air in free format for over 50 years, which is really, really exciting. And uh, I've been I've done a few things with WHRW. We once I work with Neil Verma, who is a prominent member of the Radio Preservation Task Force, and we put together a 75th anniversary of War of the Worlds. And That's WHRW, right. Oh, it was so much fun. WHRW generously gave us three hours of time. You know, we were hoping for an hour, you know, we just, and they were so, so cool and so fun to work with. And they help us stage a, a live, um, we first, we made a podcast. You can actually listen to that podcast on sounding out that would set the historical context for war of the Worlds. Then we broadcast the original piece uh, this at the 75th anniversary and had people all over the world listening. We actually broke KUC, uh, WHRW streaming that night. They had to fix it so they could widen it. So people around the world were listening. And then afterwards, we had a live conversation and discussion on air about War of the Worlds. And so that was my first encounter in working with them. And since then, um, we did one of my interns. Sounding Out has had just some amazing creative interns. Last semester, James Tilstey, he's the pop music director at WHRW, hosted a radio program called Listening In with Sounding Out. And every week he hosted and had our writers call in and talk about the kinds of work they're doing for sounding out and actually get a chance to go deeper into the pieces they were writing. And we're actually releasing those um, one a month throughout the year. So we have so they're becoming sounding out podcasts. Thanks to the you know, thanks to the archiving over at, at WHRW. And yeah, it was really great experience. And we hope to, to revive it, revive it in the future. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Jennifer Stover, your editor in chief of the sounding out blog. And then there's also the sounding out podcast and you're an associate professor of English at Binghamton university in Binghamton, New York. Thank you so much for joining us to talk about sound studies and helping us to, to uh, expand our ears <laughs> and think more broadly about the sounds we take in the voices and, and other timbres and, and think a little more critically about it and open our minds. Really appreciate you joining us on the show. Thank you so much. It was, it was a wonderful experience. Thanks once again to Jennifer Stover. You can find Sounding Out at soundstudiesblog.com. You can also find show notes and learn more about everything we talked about here on today's show at radiosurvivor.com slash podcast. We are a listener and reader supported enterprise. To learn more about how you can help us keep doing what we do, go to radiosurvivor.com slash support. On behalf of Eric Klein, Jennifer Waits, and myself, Paul Reesmanel, we thank you very much for spending another hour with us.